And so it's lovely to come and be with you and to speak into your journey as a people at this point of vulnerability for me. And so what I've been thinking about and what I have on my heart to share with you is when I um, came last time, I heard for the first time, I think really, the, the scripture that is such a foundational kind of call for you guys. Um, and I'd never heard that before, so I'd never sort of put the two together, but that's that part of um, Samuel and, um, and the, um, the journey of David and the cave of Adjulam. So um, I'm just going to read a little bit for you, so, and then I'm going to speak around that. Oh, I want to put this down. So this is um, the part of the, um, the Old Testament when... Um, when Saul, in his complicatedness, King Saul, um, turns against um, David in jealousy and emotional complicatedness and um, pursues him to kill him and orders all the priests to be killed. Um, and nobody will kill the priests because I think that that is obviously just too an unholy thing to do. But they do find somebody and he kills 87 priests. And so David has gone away to hide and, um, and one priest escapes and goes to be with him. This is the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 22. So David left there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where his brothers and when his brothers and all his father's house heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he became their captain. So, the distressed, when some translations it says the oppressed. The people that are in need. The people for whom life is not that great. And then those that are in debt. And debt's a sort of funny thing really, but that sense of debt, the literal debt, but that sense in which, in that older, old, old Anglican um, where we used to say the Lord's Prayer, would say, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. So the language of debt is about sinfulness as well. It's a sense of kind of the burden, the burden of all that is not right in our humanity. So those that are oppressed, those that are out of sorts, who are not right in their humanity, and everyone who is discontented. And the, the language for discontented is the bitterness of soul those whose soul is embittered, who carry within them kind of the poisonous streams as well as the life-giving streams. And Scotty shared that night how this is a really significant scripture for your sense of identity. <laughs> this gathering, this place to gather. So I want to share a little bit about the, those scriptures and that theme and just share a little bit of my own story as well. So perhaps like Many of you, um, I didn't grow up in the church at all, um, but I grew up very discontented with the world. And I knew that there must be something more than what I could see, and more than what the people around me were telling me life was about, or the world was about. Whether they be my family or my school or all those things, I was discontented at a deep level. So in my kind of discontentedness, I used to go off and wander, and I was brought up in the Peak District, which is a beautiful part of England. It's kind of the, the sort of quintessential English villages, these beautiful little villages with dry stone walls, 
um, a village green, village pub, a village church, and hills and dales where you kind of go and explore. And so for me, in my discontentedness, I would literally go and find caves. There's a place called Castleton, which is the village down the road from me, and it's famous for its caves. There are caves where you can go and explore, you can go in on boats, there are all this kind of massive tourist attraction now, and there's certain gemstones which is found in these caves that is found nowhere else. Um, and this area where I live is an area where people go caving, which I never actually could imagine wanting to put a headlamp on and crawl under the earth in tight, confined spaces that didn't really appeal. <laughs> so the kind of caves that I found were the little kind of crevices of rock where you could go walk up the hills and the cliffs and just find a little place where nobody would be able to find you and where you could sit and process the world and figure out what was going on and connect with yourself again. And for me, really, that was where I found God and where I connected with God. The sense of finding my parent God in a place that was hidden away. And then when I um, left Derbyshire, when I left home, I left at home at 18, and um, in some bazaars, I look back now and I think, that was quite a strange thing to do. But I, um, I knew that I really wanted to go exploring and travelling and to do development work and community development work around the world. And so I worked in our local pub, as well as other jobs, and saved up money. And so at 18, I bought Around the World ticket and um, left home and travelled for a year around the world before the internet. <laughs> like, I organised voluntary work in all these countries all around the world. And um, I went off by myself at 18, got on a plane and um, went to America first and travelled all the way around. And um, what I realised when I left my land, and I, I thought, I don't know how I'm going to cope without this land. Because these caves whether they be on the top of a hillside or hidden in a wall, um, you know, a, a primrose wood. They were my caves, the places where I would go and, and minister to my discontentment and find the soothing presence of God. And I thought, how am I going to cope without these caves? And as I travelled, and America was the first place that I travelled, and um, Thankfully, I was, began working in an, an outdoor education place, what was kind of the summer camps during the summer, and then in the other times, it was at YMCA camps. And so there was this other land, and in this land, I could kind of gradually find that connection with God. But then I was in cities, and I never liked cities. I always found cities really difficult, because I didn't know how to connect with God in them. And I found myself going into churches. And I go to an empty church... And I realised that being in an empty church was similar to being in the caves in the Peak District. And as I went into these empty churches, um, every now and again, I just feel I should try and find something of God and try and figure out what was kind of going on and what this connection was. So I would pick up Bibles, and I'd do that really lovely thing that you do in your kind of um, unknowing, and I'd just open the Bible and go like that. <laughs> I was like, oh, talk to me, God. And, um, and this is how God would talk to me. And, the, and again and again, this scripture kept coming to me. And it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 15. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, 
they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So that was a scripture that again and again kept coming to me. And that's a really gnarly scripture, actually. <laughs> when you come wanting to go to a place of peace and comfort, to have words of hate is a really confusing thing. And it confused me, but it also gave me enormous solidarity. And I didn't really understand. And I think all that I got in that sense of kind of finding that scripture was a sense that Jesus understood my discontentment and that my discontentment with the world was akin to Christ's discontentment with the world and that there was this sense of connection and we have to kind of understand when John writes about the world he writes in very black and white language and you know I've journeyed a long time since then and so much of my life now is filled with beautiful Celtic theology and beautiful gifts of the world and the life of this earth and the life of each other and this joy in our humanity, this joy in the humanness and the creativeness of this world. Um, so that was a strange thing for me to think about hating the world back then. But what was coming in the, the heart of it was a sense of Jesus saying to me, I know how you feel because that's how I felt. And you're feeling like that because really you're of my heart. And when David is in this cave and he's hiding away, becoming a leader, which he didn't intend to do, he just wanted to go and hide, the remaining priest who finds him goes to see him. And this is what David says to that priest. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. And I think that maybe those words of scripture from the Gospel of John was Jesus' way of saying that to me. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The things, the people, the evil that are seeking to eat away at your life also sought to destroy me. But you'll be safe with me. That that's what Jesus offered me. And it was a long time till I learned Jesus' name, a long time till I learned who he was and began to form that beautiful friendship with me that he offered all the time ago back then. So there's lots of parts of my story that I'd love to share with you over the coming years, but there's one thing that I wanted to really talk with you about tonight, and that's kind of about this really odd thing that happens for David in the cave, that in this cave that he goes and is in solidarity with those who are discontent, in solidarity with those who are oppressed, and in solidarity with those who are overwhelmed with debt. He doesn't get to stay there. That David has to lead the people out of that place of discontentment out of that place of indebtedness, out of that place of oppression and distress, and lead them to a place of a new kingdom, away from the failing kingdom of Saul and into a new kingdom, the kingdom that David would himself create.
a kingdom that would be the most glorious time in the people of Israel's history. The kingdom that then, through there, would be the whakapapa of our own Lord Jesus Christ. So I wanted to share with you my sense and my stories of utter confusion when God has thrown me out of the cave (laughs) and told me that I can't stay there but to go on that journey into the new kingdom. So I'm going to tell you just a couple of stories and then I want to share with you some things that I've learned about how to leave the cave. So the first story I want to share with you is about the first time that I celebrated the Eucharist, which is our bread and wine, our family meal. Um, So I didn't know much about the ins and outs of Anglican church life, having not grown up in the church. And um, although I became a Christian and through an Anglican church in England, um, I soon came out to New Zealand. And when I came out to New Zealand, I began to work in our Victoria University chaplaincy. And we church planted there. We kind of planted a new church. It was really informal. It began with six of us. And we, so we shared Eucharist around the six of us. When you have six people, you don't use big prayer books and big liturgies because it doesn't feel right. So it's much more kind of informal and familiar. And that church grew and grew and grew. But because we'd begun in that simple way, we just stayed in that simple way. And so lots of the kind of rubrics of what you do in church, why you wear certain clothes and why you do things, was all completely foreign to me. And it always really intimidated me. And one of my early experiences was going along to um, Catholic church with some of my extended family who are all Irish Catholics. And um, one of them gave me this book about basically how to make sense of church. It kind of gives you the stage directions of this is happening now and that's why it's happening. I can just remember being quite young, completely bemused, trying to kind of follow what was happening with this book. And then they went up for communion, but they all turned to me and said, no, no, you're not allowed to go. You have to stay here. So I can remember sitting there, as, and I was quite young, as everybody else went up. And I just thought, oh, I must be not good enough. Because that's what you think when you're a child. <coughs> you know, that must be the reason why I can't go. So for me... Lots about church made me feel not good enough. When you don't understand something and you're afraid, you're not in your happy place, eh? And so um, what was really fascinating for me, just the journey that I had of becoming a priest, was that I was ordained from that chaplaincy community but moved straight to a parish church. And so the first time I ever distributed communion in an Anglican way was when I was ordained as a deacon. I'd never actually shared the cup and said the words because we'd been a really creative church plant and had done things differently. So it's quite disorientating for me. So the first time I celebrated Eucharist, um, I got used to things. You know, you ordained first as a deacon, and then a year later I was ordained as a priest. So in that year, I'd got my head around normal Anglican church worship. I understood what happened and why people did things at different places. So I sort of got my head around the gist of it. So I wasn't really expecting this to be kind of freaky, but when I came to serve and to proclaim the kind of great story of God that you do as a priest, and you, you break the bread and you, and you bless the bread and you um, lift up the cup and you bless the cup and you recall that story of Christ, I found something really odd happening to me. I found myself getting filled with all these childhood returned emotions of dread and fear. And it kind of confused me. I thought, what is going on here? What are all these emotions and why are they all coming? And I suddenly connected that what was happening to me was that because this was like the family meal, 
in a new family that I was figuring out, it took me back to the kitchen of my childhood, which wasn't a very happy place. <laughs> so for me, celebrating the Eucharist for the first time, I found myself in a family kitchen. And as a woman who had been brought up in a church where women were not allowed to preside at the Eucharist. In New Zealand, that happened a long time ago, but in England, it's very, very, very recent. And it's only two or three years ago that women are allowed to be bishops in England. In New Zealand, we were the first country about 25 years ago. So the whole image of me as a woman presiding at this family kitchen table just brought up all this stuff. And so as I kind of realized that I was getting bombarded with this imagery, um, I just put it to God and God said to me, just pretend you're in the pub. <laughs> pretend you're in the pub. <laughs> so because I've been a barmaid and I love pubs being English, the English pub is like your kind of community home. Everyone goes in a village pub, you all go to the pub in the evening and that's where you all are. And so I suddenly clicked into the sense of being behind the bar in the pub and suddenly the Eucharist flowed in a beautifully different way for me. <laughs> I haven't told many people. <laughs> so the second story that I wanted to share with you was about the time when I first was asked to go and work in the cathedral. So as somebody who didn't find the normal structures of church, my first language. I'd been in this parish for um, a little while, but not very long, and I was asked to think about going to be a canon in the cathedral, a big pink building down here. And I have to say, I was absolutely terrified at the thought. Because kind of doing the right thing, saying the right thing in the Anglican structure can feel a little bit tricky. The cathedral is a very complicated environment to worship and lead worship in. You're not like you're here where you can just kind of lean to each other. You're, it's such a big space that you're so far apart from the people that you could lean over and go, what happens next? <laughs> you have to really know your stuff. And, and when you go in the big high altar, it's so far from everybody else. You're so isolated and alone behind the altar. And I'd always found a lot of church a place fearful for me. And so... Um, Going into this cathedral setting, the other thing that is, was absolutely terrifying for me was at that time in particular, all the priests sing solo during the Eucharist. <laughs> now, I'm not a singer. I can kind of get away with it when I have to. But you solo sing what's called the, source, the Sursum Corda. You solo lead um, Evensong, and that's just expected. And so the night that I felt God say, yep, I want you to do this. I didn't sleep all night. I just kept thinking, how am I, imagining myself singing out behind the altar going, I just can't do this. It was absolutely terrifying for me. And it was at a really hard point for me um, personally as well because um, it was just as I was being ordained as a priest, I, asked, I had this kind of call. And at that point, um, my, my first stepmom had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I get teary. <laughs> but it was really hard because the last time I'd been with her, she said <coughs> she hadn't, um, at that point, she didn't know she was going to get cancer again, but she'd had it a number of times. And she said to me, I know that if I die, I know your dad will be fine because you'll look after him. And what was really hard for me was everything within me wanted to go back to England. Um, and no one knew she had cancer because... 
um, she decided that, you know when you share something about your life and everyone asks you about it? And it was really sad. She thought she had a lump and the doctor said, oh no, it's nothing. By the time she had a scan, it was secondary. So she decided that nobody would know, only her children and, my husband, and her husband and my dad would know. So we, we had this incredible secret between us all. So she came out for my ordination as a priest and that was the last time I saw her. And so I had no desire, no desire to go and work in the cathedral at all <laughs> for lots and lots of reasons. Eh? Um, but what I knew was that um, I knew that God was asking me to do that. And when she came out, she was really funny. She just said, look, we just so love seeing what happens in your life. We don't want you to come back. Your dad will be fine. You know, we don't want you coming back. We just, want, we just take so much joy in seeing these crazy adventures that you end up getting yourself into. <laughs> so you have to stay there. And she sort of said at the cathedral, she said, oh, you'll love all this pomp and finery. You'll love all those fancy clothes, you know. <laughs> well, really, you know, go over yourself. You'll enjoy it. Um, but the thing that I had heard God say to me and why I knew that's where God wanted me to go and not to go home is he said, I want you to work here and serve here so there is never a church that you're afraid of. So no one knew that, but I knew that was the one thing that I was doing there. I was getting over my fear of the church. So those are two stories. I could tell you lots of them. <laughs> but those are two stories of times for me where God kicked me out of the cave and told me to initiate and be part of leading a new kingdom changing a culture of a kingdom that kind of had become dysfunctional and beginning and being part of a kingdom that was full of health and vitality. So I want us to think about those three things. Being oppressed, being in debt and being discontented. Because what I think happens in the cave is that we are healed. We have a place where we're healed. And if we stayed in the cave, we'd stay healed. But when you get asked to go back out and join another movement and join another move of God, the chances are that you'll get hurt again. The chances are that you'll experience fresh oppression. You'll experience fresh discontentment. And you'll experience fresh debts, people that you'll need to forgive and people that will need to forgive you. And in the cave, you work with God to know how to heal so that you can always heal inwardly and always heal outwardly. So that when you go back out and you are bruised and you do meet oppression, you don't then have to go back to the cave, but you know how to meet those things with love and with peace. And so with oppression, you meet that with grace. And you have grace for those who oppress you. And you have love for those who torment you. And in debt, when you meet those like this morning, praying forgiveness, both to and for the people that I have journeyed with for the last five years, we find 
freedom and forgiveness. And we become people who can easily forgive, not people who don't need to forgive, and not people who don't need to ask forgiveness, but we become people who can easily forgive and easily seek forgiveness. And in that discontentedness, that bitterness of the soul, we learn how to filter the bitterness and the bile within us and find instead the rivers of life so that we can drink of that life-giving stream within ourselves and we can offer it as a drink to others. My dad um, said something really lovely to me this afternoon as I was coming out and I explained that, um, that this was a uh, you know, part of our blueprints, part of our Anglican family, and one of the younger um, parts of our family. And he said to me something about the new generation, and it was very wise. I thought I'd share it with you today. <laughs> but he just said that when he was young, in the 60s and 70s, the movement was always against the establishment. That for him, they had to ra rally against an establishment. And he said, in my generation, we were beginning to notice the environment for the first time. So we were also railing against, because we were saying, look at all these things in the 80s, the 90s, the first time we recognised the environment. And he said, but the, the young people now, they're not railing against, they're taking responsibility for. They're the new builders. They're creating new communities. They're creating new places of health, new places of vitality. They're taking responsibility. And I think there's something of great truth in there. And I think that that speaks into this image of the cave and coming out of that cave and being the people who will initiate and lead a new kingdom. So I'd love to pray for you and then I'll hand back to our guys here as we head into our time of Eucharist. And as we come to that bread and that wine, let it remind you that God used something that seems like complete weakness to create a strength that we can't fully understand. And God used something that seems like complete death to create a fullness of life that we are beginning to understand. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come into your presence and we thank you that your calling over us is one of love. Thank you that you say that we can stay with you because you understand what it's like. You understand how we feel. You understand our sense of disconnectedness with this world and our hunger for your true home. Thank you that you say that we are safe with you. May the gift of your safety, the gift of your presence, overshadow us once more.